Well, if you have your Bibles this morning, we're going to be back to John chapter 1, as I'm sure you're well aware of. Last week, we talked about what I call uh, one of the great battleground verses of the Bible. There are some verses in the Bible that have been fought over for hundreds of years and uh, have led, when they're taught wrong, or when they're laid out wrong, taught, uh, have brought up some of the most damnable heresy that certainly if a person believes could never be saved and, and, uh, and found God's eternal life. And that was in John chapter 1, verse 18, where it said, No man has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, who is in the bosom of the Father, he hath declared him. And we talked about how that God, we have been talking about how that God declared his son. And the difference between, as the King James Bible says, uh, him being a begotten son and uh, versus the heretical teaching coming out of Alexandria, Egypt, so many hundreds of years ago that Jesus Christ was not equal with God, but a lesser God. And so you find in all the new Bibles that he was a begotten God. And we know now that when he was manifested as the begotten son. That was when he came into this world. You know, our understanding of how the attack on the word of God uh, down through history has played itself out and, and even goes on today. And you know, if you are any kind of a Bible student, you know that uh, it was already going on in Paul's day. He said in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 17, for you're not as many which corrupt the word of God, but as of God in the sight of God, speak we in Christ. And so we see that in Paul's day, it was already happening, already unfolding. And I showed you how that when you go back to church history and go back through history and look at the parallels, you'll find that uh, two lines that clearly develop uh, that you can find uh, coming through the Bible and really get defined for you uh, in, in the book of Acts and how that they continue up through history and uh, even into this day. And I showed you how that out of, out of the book of Acts, Alexandria, Egypt, and a little bit later Rome formed the hotbed of heresy. Men who their whole passion about the Bible is to destroy it and corrupt it. And how that uh, the guy by the name of Origen back there, along with Clement of Alexandria, along with Pantanus, along with a guy by the name of Philo, they worked overtime in destroying the Word of God and came up with a Greek New Testament that had over 75,000 changes in it from the one that you would find in the true line out of Antioch. And then, of course, the other great city uh, that you need to know about, as we talked last week, is Antioch of Syria. That is the hotbed of Bible Christianity in the early New Testament, where Alexandria, Egypt, is the hotbed of heresy. A little later on in Rome, Antioch of Syria is where the first Bible teachers are sent out, that the first missionaries are sent out. That's where they're first called Christians at Antioch. And they had the forerunner of what you're holding in your lap through the Greek New Testament that they had, because the world was a Greek-speaking world, but that is the same manuscripts that has been translated into your English King James Bible. And these three churches now form for us two clear lines of churches, two clear lines of Christianity, and two clear lines of Bibles. 
and uh, they form for us a, a model pattern, a pattern that is very, very, very easy to see and trace through history if you just use the Bible and don't get into all the other junk that everybody is putting out there. And last week I told you the real key, the real key to true biblical Christianity, the real key to a true Bible-believing church, the real key to a Bible-believing Christian will be a man or a woman or a pastor or a church who has that unbroken chain of Bible doctrine that has been, as Paul said in 2 Timothy 2.1, been passed down from faithful men to faithful men. Hasn't changed in 2,000 years of history. Nothing's deleted from it. Nothing is added to it. We stand on the exact same truth that the Waldensians stood on, the Polysians stood on, the Nestorians stood on, all those Bible-believing groups, and the list is really endless. Now, today we're going to come back to John chapter 1, and uh, we're going to uh, get through verses 19 through 28. I know, that is a shock. (laughs) What's happening here? Ten verses. But uh, there's a thought here that I want to develop, and we've had fun with the battleground verses or the key verses. Now, this is just as important today, but it just kind of spreads itself out through these 10 verses, so we'll deal with the day. We're going to begin to move out of our intro of the book of John 2. And up to this point, uh, verse uh, 18, first 18, it's been an introduction, defining things. Now in verse 19, we start to move uh, and look at the actual ministry of John the Baptist, and then in just in the end of this chapter, in the beginning of the next chapter, the ministry of Jesus Christ as he begins his public ministry. So let's pray this morning. Logan, would you stand up and ask God, where's my quick trip master? You said you ordered me one. They're out. They're out. <laughs> a likely story. See, I was going to go in and wear it and just get stuff and say, I'm on lunch, I'll be back in a little bit, but that's okay. <laughs> pray for the service this morning. John chapter 1, verse 19. Here we go. And this is the record of John where the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who art thou? And he confessed and denied not, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, What then? Art thou Elias? And he said, I am not. Art thou that prophet? That would be Moses. And he said, "Uh, No. And he answered, no. Then said they unto him, who art thou, that we may give an answer to them that sent us, uh, what sayest thou of thyself? And he said, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as said the prophet Isaiah. And they which were sent to the Pharisees, and they asked him and said unto him, why baptizest thou then, if thou be not the Christ, or Elias, Elijah, uh, neither that prophet? John answered them, saying, I baptize with water, but there standeth one among you whom ye know not. That would be Jesus. Uh, it is, uh, it is, uh, he it is that coming, uh, who coming after me is preferred before me, whose shoes latchet I am not worthy to unloose. These things were done in Bethabara, beyond Jordan, where John uh, was baptizing. Now, 
I like to look for things in the Bible. Uh, that's actually, and I've taught you this before, it's one of the keys in learning your Bible is actively always wanting to find something or look for something and then ask yourself why. I, I don't even know if you ever saw this or not. Um, it's a thing, but you know there's two times in your Bible where it says, and this is the record. Imagine that, two times in your Bible. Out of all the verses in the Bible, 31,176 verses, there's two times you find in all of the stories, in all of the things that happen, two times it directly says, and this is the record. Now, when I saw that a number of years ago, then I, I, I thought to myself, well, that must be pretty important. So as I began to look at it, I found uh, that in John chapter 1, verse 19, we have a record here of the Lord Jesus Christ coming to the nation of Israel, and now it's on the record. You know, over in 1 John chapter 5, verse 11, 12, 13, 11, 12 and 13, it says on the record, and that's for you and me for the church. You know, most of God's people have no idea to what these two records even deal with. But John tells us here, in his ministry, he's giving the Jews a record going on the record. That's a term we like the politicians like to use. Well, I'm going on the record. Or they'll say to you, I'll say this to you, but it's off the record. That means there's no official verification of it. When you go on the record to say something, you're being documented that what you're saying is used and truth, and you're going to stand on it. So John here is standing on the record or giving the record of the truth of Christ coming to the nation of Israel. And so here, when he goes on the record, it's for the Jew. Now, when he writes 1 John, he's dealing with Christians and he's dealing with fellowship. And so when he says in 1 John 5, 13, 11, 12, and 13, this is the record God hath given to us eternal life and this life is in his Son. He that hath the Son hath life. He that hath not the Son of God hath not life. Then he says this, these things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. You know what the record for you is? That you can know you're saved. People say, well, you know, I think I can lose. We have, we've had people come to the church here, you know, bless their hearts, they're good people, and they struggle with losing their salvation. They just think, I'm up one day and down the next. I, I've dealt with them for years and years, and they just can't ever get the victory. And you know what your problem is? You don't have a record, or you don't believe the record God gave you. You realize how hard it is to do anything in life without a record? You try to go get a job or go, try to go to school or try to do something and they're going to want to see your birth certificate. You know what your birth certificate is? It's a record of that you were born. And I'm telling you, you standing in front of him is not enough proof. <laughs> they want a record of that. You go to Walmart. You go to Starbucks. You go to Panera. Wherever you go, when you pay your bill, you get a receipt. You know what that receipt is? It's your record. You got a dog, a cat. If you're complying with the rules, you're supposed to get a dog license. You know what that dog license is? It's a record. There isn't anything in this world. You go buy a car, you get a title. Well, the bank gets it for a while, and then you get it when you pay it off, and it's a record. You buy a house, you got a deed. It's a record. 
You can't do anything in life without a record. And I'm going to tell you, and this has nothing to do with the message, but I'm on a roll here, so I'm going to stay with it. Just like you can't any do anything in life without a record, you'll never do anything with God if you don't have the record. You see? Now, I know this is not popular, what I'm about to say today, but there may be times in your Christian life where you have to lay it on the line. No, I know that's not popular with all you Christians hiding under the bed this morning at home, but I'm telling you, there may be a time today in your Christian life where you have to, you have to put all that you are and all that you have on the line for him. And nobody's going to do that if you ain't sure if you get killed in the process or you die in the process or something happens in the process that you're not saved. So you got two records. Two times in the Bible, this is the record. One for Israel, the record of Christ coming as their Messiah. One for you and me in 1 John chapter 5 that says that you have a record of your salvation and you will never do anything meaningful for God till you absolutely know for sure you're saved and you can quote out the record. It's that simple. That's the official statement on your salvation. Now, in this record will be some great lessons for all of us. The one in John chapter 19. I'm done preaching about ours for a little bit. You know, when it comes to my Bible and me, and I can't, I'm not speaking for you. I always really enjoyed the historical application. You know, I, I, uh, I have, I've always had a love for history. I don't, I don't, I don't, I, even when I was a kid in school, you know, we'd have what we call reading lab. I don't even know if they have reading labs anymore, but you'd go in there and I'd always be getting something on history. I mean, I just, I just, I, I like to read books on history. I like to read, I like to know what happened in history. And I've just had a passion for it. And, uh, you know, the, I love the history of, of God and what he does and how you can't separate that from the nations down through history and how you can't separate the nations from the Bible. And when you put all that under, get, out together, you have understanding then. It better puts you in a position to see where you're at or where you're going because you can see where, where God has been. You know, in the Bible, as far as what God is doing and where he's going uh, is 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 key to understanding where he's at today, and then where I need to be. You know, history, time, time has three parts to it. Of course, you know this. It has a past. That's history. It has a present. That's where you're at today. And then it has a future. And you can't separate any one of those three. Because you take any one of those three out of the equation and you're done. You're lost. If you don't know where you've been, you don't know where you're at. And if you don't know where you've been and where you're at, I guarantee you, you don't know where you're going. And that's the problem. History to me was vital. And I, you know, and I just, you know, I just enjoyed it. And history can be boring in some cases. Uh, it, it can be. Some of the books that I read, I mean, uh, I'd fall asleep. It took me years to get through it because I kept falling asleep at night. But, but, but some of it can be exciting. But when you, put it all, when you put the Bible into it, then it comes alive. And I'll tell you, I also really enjoy the doctrinal application. When I was a young guy just getting into the Bible and I was going to Bible studies and hearing some great preachers back in the day, I'd hear him talking about the doctrinal application. I heard Dr. Ruckman preach one time, and I had just gotten right with God. 
and I was sitting on the platform of the church because I was in a little brass ensemble that played with the, the uh, with the hymns. And that night, Dr. Ruckman preached and drew the message, the gospel according to Exodus. That was my first introduction of going into an Old Testament book like Exodus, Exodus chapter 12, and seeing a story in the Old Testament layout with the New Testament laid out so clearly through it. And I, I just sat there, and I thought, I, I can see him now. He's sitting up there, you know, and he, he, he's got this big board up there, and he's drawing us there, you know. And he says, now, uh, look down there at verse 1. You see what that says? It says, it says, uh, it says, uh, it says uh, these guys needed a lamb. And then he comes down there, and he said, now, look at the next verse. And he says, it says, the lamb. Then down here in verse 3 or 4 or 5, it says, your lamb. And then he stopped, and he looked around, and he said, now, isn't that a coincidence? Whoever wrote that saw Christ dying on the cross because the gospel according to Exodus is a picture of the lamb being slain at the Passover, putting the blood on the door and on the side post of the door. And when I see the blood, I'll pass. He laid that thing out. You know what he said? He said, now what kind of Bible do you think starts out talking about saying you need the lamb or you need a lamb, the lamb, and your lamb? And the book in the Bible that talks about the gospel according to Exodus. Because see, the first thing you all need, this is him now, you all need is, is a lamb. But he said, but you know, not any lamb will do. You need the lamb. And he says, but you know, folks, you can know all about the lamb until you make it your lamb. And I thought to myself, I would have read that a thousand times and wouldn't have seen that. And he went on down and showed how that the blood on the door and the lintel is a picture of three, three crosses. One thief here, one thief here, and the lintel at the top, Christ exalted above the other. Oh, it was incredible. I was sitting there thinking, how do you do that? I wanted that so badly. I wanted to be able to get into that Bible and read it and see it and see that doctrinal stuff just pop all over the place. And it comes in time. It comes in time that you ought to get to the place in your life where you can read any book of the Bible, any chapter of the Bible, and that stuff just pops out all over the place. And obviously the key to it, and I've written several books on it in there, is the words. The key to it is understanding what the book in an overall thing puts. There's just some basic keys. When you learn those keys and you use those keys, then here it is. I'll never forget that. That was my first introduction. <clears throat> that was my first introduction. And boy, that old boy waxed eloquently that night, and he laid that thing out, and now he went down through there, and it was one of the most amazing things. I still have the cassette tape that I bought that night. I probably listened to it a thousand times. I wouldn't dare put it in a machine now. It would break, but I got it. Right on there, Dr. Ruckman, the gospel according to Exodus. Doctrine. How God uses the cycle of history. How history, and God will use the repetitive of history. How history repeats itself. To show us so clearly through the doctrinal application what is in the future. Because doctrinal application will be the the specific teaching. 
And he'll use the very invents in the Bible. He'll use, he'll use in samples or examples. He'll use types. He'll use models. He'll use patterns. And the Bible talks about in Job chapter 12, verse 7, he says, ask the, ask the animals, ask the beast. They'll teach you. He uses animals in the Bible. The doctrinal application will be the, the, the spark plug of the Bible. If the Bible is like an engine in your car and you fill it up with gas, it won't start and run and really go anywhere until you put spark plugs in it. And you can have the Bible and you can have all the stuff that you want, but until you get the doctrinal aspect of that Bible, that Bible won't come alive. 21 types of Christ. 18 types of the Antichrist. Seven churches in Revelation and how they lay out. People in the Bible. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and all the people there who are diseased and have problems and have issues and what they really represent. When I talk about over the last couple of weeks getting the fullness of God and the depth of God, I'm talking about doctrine. And I enjoy doctrine. I do. I like looking at those things. That's one of the reasons I like Thursday night Bible study so much and, you know, where you ask questions off the cuff because it keeps me fresh. It keeps me, it keeps me, uh, I feel a little dull with questions coming in, you know, that I have them to look at. Uh, I don't, I like to just to be hit right off the bat and not know what's coming because it keeps you on your toes and it forces you whenever you ask me a question to look for those key things and out it comes. Doctrine. I loved it. History and doctrine. Then you'll have what we call the inspirational application. The Bible has three applications to it. You'll have a historical application. You'll have a doctrinal application. That is a specific teaching, many times to prophecy in the future. But then you'll have an inspirational application. Sometimes it's called a practical application. And how each story or each person or event and each chapter in the Bible or book or verse we'll have an application that teaches us about something in our everyday life, maybe about ourselves or how to deal with things. You see, where history deals with the past and where most doctrine deals with the future, inspiration will meet us right where we're at in this life and help us today and tomorrow with what we've got to deal with. And in this passage today, it's always been... It's, it's always meant a lot to me. It's, it's been something I discovered years and years and years ago, and I laid it out, and it's just meant so much to me. And I want to kind of lay it out. I hate the word share. I just want to kind of lay it out to you today. And uh, for those of you who are neo-evangelicals and kind of wishy-washy, I want to share with you today something out of this book so you get it. You know, I guess fundamentally... I know what my number one problem is with God. And I know that if it's my number one problem, it certainly has to be your number one problem too. And the number one problem we all have will be in two areas. The first one will be us being honest with God. And the second one will be us being honest with ourselves. I guess those two things are the number two, one and two problems that every Christian has to deal with and we all have to face. I mean, we all have issues we deal with and we all have things that we struggle with, but the real bottom line question is not what that particular thing is. The real question is, will you get honest with God with it? And then when you get honest with God, you have to get honest with yourself. 
Because this whole story that I'm reading to you today will be built around just that one question that they came to ask John. I don't know if you've ever even seen that question or not. You know, question there again. When I started to study my Bible, as I grew in the Lord and got into my Bible, I realized that uh, there was so much to it. <laughs> I mean, I, I know some of you have told me in the past, when you get into the thing, you kind of get overwhelmed with it. Well, I was there. And I realized, just like everything else, whether it be the coronavirus, whether it be some issue that you, I realized that you had to chart a course through that to get the way you wanted to get it as fast as you could. And everything in your Christian life, I don't care if it's something you're facing or the Bible itself, if you want to get through something that's overwhelming, you've got to find a path through it, not around it. And, you know, that's what I did. I realized that every aspect of the Bible was to be looked at, evaluated, understood, and, and then absolutely applied. I saw it as God's mind, and I kind of looked at it as me searching every corner of God's mind. It became my obsession to learn everything I could. And yet I, 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 I can tell you right now, after almost 50 years in it and coming through it and learning it, and I, I, could, I could feel what I don't know about the Bible would fill 10,000 universes. I've just scratched the surface. And I've learned that there, in Christianity, there are no Bible scholars. Guy quotes himself as a Bible scholar or somebody else says, talks about Bible scholarship. I'm going to tell you right now, you stay away from somebody like that. There are no Bible scholars. We're all just Bible students on different levels. When you give, I'm a Bible scholar, it gives the impression you've arrived. You haven't arrived anywhere except at the city dump. There are no great scholarly minds of the Bible. They're just men and women just like you, no better than you, no better than me, no worse than you or me, who are students. You may be on different levels of being a student, but you're just a student because you're ever, ever, ever trying to learn. And you know, I... uh, and then one day it hit me. One day it hit me. I, I, I got looking at that thing and I, and I started to, I, I don't even remember where it was, but I, I saw that God asked a question in the Bible. And, I, and it just hit me. If all the statements in the Bible mean something and I can take those statements and apply it some way, certainly the questions must mean something. So in my little way of world, of the way of doing things, I put me a little side thing over here, and, and I, coming through the Bible, you know, I, I, uh, I started cataloging all the questions that I found. And, and one day I ran across Job chapter 38, and verses 1 through 3, and it says, Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkened the counsel by word without knowledge? It was a question. Now, gird up now thy loins like a man, for I will demand of thee an answer. And then I started coming through that. You know what I found? In the rest of that chapter, there's, he asked 38 questions. And he says down there, somebody's going to have to answer because I'm going to demand an answer from you. And my, my point is this. In the Bible... Now, when God makes a statement, he's going to hold you accountable to it, what you do with it. But I'm going to tell you right now, 
In the Bible, when God asked a question, somebody's going to have to answer him. He said, I demand to you. He says, gird up thy loins like a man. That's a, you ever see that? Big tough guy going to get up. He's sitting at a bar someplace and somebody says something and he's going to go over there and hold him accountable or he's sitting up there. What do he do? He gets up and first thing he does is girding up his loins. See? That's what men do. I'm not sure what you do with the ones who wear it down around here. I'm not sure that they need to be girded up somehow, but it's not my job. <laughs> 38 questions. I wonder who's going to have to answer those. Then as I went on through there, I found in Job chapter 26, verses 1 through 4, and I've given this to you before. I even got a sermon I preached on. I found the six questions that most likely we're going to be asked at the judgment seat of Christ. Because when you look at these six questions in Job chapter 26 through 1 through 4, actually the only one that can answer them is a New Testament born-again Christian. Now, you know, I would think, this is just me, I would think that once a person saw those questions and realized he was going to have, it's like taking the biggest test of your life. And yet somebody gives you the cheat sheet that gives you all the answers on it. You know now what you're going to be asked. And God's people just oblivious and keep on doing their own thing. It's crazy. Questions in the Bible. You ever see the question God asked the devil at the crucifixion? What a shame. The question that God asked the devil when he's being, oh, I know, you think that there's just a little, oh, yeah, yeah, it goes way deeper than that. The first, the, not the first, the question that God asked the devil at the crucifixion. There it is. Last week I talked about how the devil wants to corrupt your mind from the simplicity that is in Christ, 2 Corinthians eleven three, And how he corrupted the word of God by changing it in over 75,000 places back there in Alexandria. Okay. Do you know where the first question is in the Bible? You know where the first question is in the Bible? You know who asked the first question in the Bible? Why, it's found in Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. And lo and behold, I found this. The first question asked in the Bible was not asked by God. The first question in the Bible was asked by the devil. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 1, he says, Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field, which the Lord God had made, and he said unto the woman, Yea, hath God said, Ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden? It was a question. First question in the Bible. And I remember when I found that, I was doing all this stuff, and I thought, I wonder what the first question is the Bible. And I thought it was going to be a hard search. Man, I didn't go three chapters in the Bible before I found it. And it was asked by the devil. And you know what he asked Eve? The first question in the Bible is sowing doubt on the Word of God, saying to one of God's people, do you really believe God knows what he's talking about? Do you really believe that that Bible means what it says? (coughs) Yea, hath God said, really? Did he really say that? Did he really mean that? 
And then after he cast doubt on what God said and put it in the form of a question, you know what the devil did? The devil did what he always does. In the next couple of verses, he then changed what God said. First Bible revision, right there in the garden. Found out by the first question in the Bible. And let me be clear here. The first question in the Bible is found in Genesis chapter 3, 6,000 years ago, and it's a question that the devil asked Eve, doubting that God knew what he was talking about and that the devil could correct his word. And you know what? The devil's been asking that question down through history to men's lives for the next 6,000 years. You go to Bible college, you find the question. You go to most churches today, Baptist churches, that's the question you're faced with. You go to the neo-evangelical churches, <laughs> I guarantee you that's that question there you deal with. First question in the Bible. Question. Boy, I learned some things. Now today, we're in John chapter 1, verses 19, coming down through here. And what I want to draw your attention to here. is the first two questions that in this life God's going to ask every Christian and everybody in this building all you people on YouTube how many's on this morning up there yell it up to me how many we got 39 39 people on there throughout the day it'll go up to 200 250, 300 by tomorrow probably. It always does. God's going to, you're going to have to answer these two questions too. And you know what? And it isn't about, it isn't about where you're at in your relationship with God. It isn't about what Bible you have. These two basic fundamental questions. One of them's in John here. The other one we're going to go to in a minute. Two questions that you're going to have to answer. You're faced with them. Now, when you come down through this, a little, when we read this passage, did you, did you catch the question that the leaders of Israel asked John in verse 19? They said, who are you? You know, that's a great question. They said, what sayest thou of thyself? You know, that is a great question. And my question to you and to me and to everybody out there is, who are you really? Now, if you're saved this morning, we all know what we should be. But you know, and I know that that's not always the case, is it? I mean, who are you this morning? 2 Corinthians 5, 17 says, If any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things are passed away. All things become new. How's that working for you? God's people, and I said this a couple weeks ago, God's people are the greatest pretenders in the world. They are the greatest self-deceivers in the world. And I've never seen people live in a state of denial like God's people today. What you see in most cases, almost with a certainty, is not what you get. I mean, I know who we are supposed to be, but who are we really? Who art thou? What sayest thou of thyself? 
Listen, I'm going to give you a great truth. In all my years in Christianity, I've learned that the greatest revealer of truth, and I told you this Thursday night, will be time itself. When you see a circumstance or a situation or something a person does, and you scratch your head and it doesn't look like, and they're up there, wow, this is of God, I'm doing this, and God told me to do that. You know what? You can't buy any of that. You know what the real proof is if God was in it or not? Time. Time. Because if God was really in it, then everything is going to work out. I have never, I have never seen a day and age when God changes his mind so much. Guys on fire. God wants me to start a church. The church flops. God changed his mind? Or wasn't God into it to begin with? I have never seen it so much today where God's people are so inept when it comes to the power of God in their lives that they, 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 they want to be who they want to be, but who they really are doesn't add up. And when nobody else tells, time will tell. I've had people leave the church over bad, stupid stuff that didn't really mean anything that they never should have left over. And they'll say, well, I'm leaving the church and we're going here because this is your favorite. God is moving me out. God is leading me out. And I don't ever question it. You know what I say to them? See you in five years. In five years, we'll see where that decision has taken you. We'll see if your family is still all together. We'll see if your health is still there. Hey, I've seen God's people, God bring them through some sickness or some illness, and they just, they just throw God under the bus and do their own thing. And you know what I've seen? I've seen two years later, three years later, God come back with a vengeance on something else you got. You don't mess with God. Who are you this morning? And the last things I'll say, see you in five years. Sometimes I'll say, you know what? Let's meet together in five years and see how that decision worked out for you. Because I already know it's going to be a disaster. Because you may not know who you really are. I got you down, pal. I got you down. You say, how can you do that? Because there's certain things you got to have in your life. And when nobody else tells, time will tell. It may take 5, 10, 15. I've known situations where it took 25 years to find out who was really right and who was really wrong. You will have family, couples, singles come to any church. I know they, they, they give the impression that they're really on board and they're really, uh, they love the Bible and love this. But in time, they'll reveal who they really were because I, I've learned this. In life, your Christian life, we can fake a lot of things. You can come down that, you can come down that, those stairs this morning and smile and hug everybody and, and smile. And you know what? And I'm not saying that it is, but I'm saying it can be. It's as fake as a $3 bill. We can fake everything. We fake wearing the right clothes. We fake having the right Bible. We fake do we, everything. We fake. I mean, we become so good at it. We can, I've learned that you can fake a lot of things in your Christian life. 
You can fake it to your wife. You can fake it to your kids. You can fake it to your pastor. You can fake it to your friends. But I'm going to tell you something right now, and you better write this down if you don't have it. You can fake a lot of things. You cannot fake true Bible Christianity. You can't. Because it isn't based on what you say. And this is, the, this is where you trip and break your neck. You got a problem and you leave and you don't fix the problem, but you say you're right, you're out of your mind. Because the number one rule of Christianity is reconciliation. Leaving a church without fixing the problem tells me that you got the problem. But people will fake that. Oh, I'm right. I'm, God's leading me. I'm right. I'm right. No, you're not right. You've deceived yourself. You've got a big mouth that you like to talk about things, but when push comes to shove and you have to follow the biblical principles, who are you this morning? What's, what sayest thou of thyself? Guy one time got mad and, 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 and left our church, and he says, he, he, he texts, nobody calls. You know, nobody will call because when you call, you got to talk to somebody. <laughs> as far as I'm concerned, texting's out of the pit of hell. <laughs> Kidding you. That's why I don't answer text. I do, as long as I can say yes or no. But nobody, you know why everybody texts today? Because you don't want to have to talk with somebody on the phone, and God help you, you won't go in and sit down and talk to somebody. Guy one time texts and he says, well, I heard that you said something about me, and I'm, we're leaving the church now because, uh, you know, nobody had this information but you, and you left the church, and I texted him back, and I said, let's have a meeting with who said that to you, us three, because I haven't talked to anybody, <clears throat> and we can fix this, because you're awfully upset about something that you have no business to be upset about because I haven't said anything. Now, if, if 99% of you here today, if not 100%, you'd be all over that. He wasn't. Wouldn't answer the text. So I made sure he wouldn't come back to church, so I called him like 10, 20 times, and he wouldn't answer his phone. Because I knew now I didn't want him to come back, and I knew now he would not come back because he'd see me waiting for him up to the door. And the first thing I'd have done was I'd have said, okay, let's go find that person. Now, do you know why? I'm speaking to you this morning because you're probably watching. Do you know why? You know why you didn't text me back? You know why you didn't answer me? You know why you don't want to face me? Let's all tell him. There was nobody. Who are you? There was nobody. If, if, if 90% of you, if there was somebody that told you I said something and you called me and I said, let's get together, you know what we'd do? We'd have a meeting. We'd clear the record. People are the biggest phony fakers on the planet today. And they pretend. Oh, the great pretender. You can fake a lot of things, folks. But you can't fake true Christianity. You know why? Because when there's a problem, you want to fix it. And when you don't want to fix it and you want to leave without fixing it, you got another agenda going, pal. 
Because there has to be some evidence of who you say you are. Oh, and this guy went on and on. Well, God's done this, God's done that, I'm this, I'm that. No, yo, you're an absolute phony. You know why? Because when push come to shove, you didn't ante up. Don't kid me, pal. Kids your wife, kids your kids, kids whoever you're hanging out with. Don't try to kid me. Who are you? True Bible Christianity has some evidences. And it's never what you say that defines who you are. It's how you conduct yourself. What you do with the biblical principles to do what's right in any given situation. Because when you're in a church that believes the book, preaches the book, eats and sleeps and drinks the book, that book will crawl all over your inner recesses of your heart. It'll get into your mind. It'll get into your soul. Hebrews chapter 4 says that book will discern the thoughts and intents of your heart. And it will in all of us. And what it does is it shows all of us who we really are. It exposes the issues in my life and in your life that we're all just kidding ourselves about. And when we don't want to change, out the door you go. To another church, or in time, no church. Hey, I've seen families, I've dealt with them over the years. They have gone from church, the church, the church, four churches, five churches, six church, different churches, and they leave every one of them in time. And oh yeah, in every case, it'll be somebody else's fault. You know the real reason? You got a glimpse of who you really are, pal. Ma'am, you got a glimpse of who you really are and you didn't want to really change. You changed the action. You changed the vocabulary. You changed the action. But you never changed the attitude. You're still the same old pretender. You want a great telling verse on who we are? It's James chapter 1, verses 22 through 25. I call this the looking glass verse of the Word of God. Remember the old story, the old witch? Mirror, mirror on the wall, who's the fairest of them all? Not you, baby. You see, you can, get all, you can get up in the morning, fix yourself up, look in the mirror and think you're pretty good. This is why when you look at yourself in the mirror when you first get up, it's just a quick glance. You got to work on yourself. Not just the women. Guys. I mean... Uh, you know, we want to blame we want to we, we, we want to blame the atmosphere and the ozone layer and all this stuff, you know, and green gas and and blaming it. It isn't that. It's it, woman's hairspray. 
And that's why most women don't, you know, I, 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 Mel used to tell Jean, if you prayed as much as you sprayed, we'd have a revival. None of us look good in the morning. You ought to see me first thing in the morning. I have, it takes me hours to get my hair right. But we look at that mirror after we got all prettied up and we think, ooh, not too bad. In fact, I look rather hot. And you deceive yourself. That's mirror, mirror on the wall. How do I look today? But when you get into the mirror of the Word of God, it strips off all the veneer. And you see who you really are, pal. You can't take it. But be ye doers of the word and not hearers only. Because when, you, when you're just a hearer of the word and you're not a doer, look what happens. You deceive your own self. There you are. You talk the talk, but when it comes down to really applying the biblical principles to an issue you said you had... For if any be a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like unto a man beholding his face in a natural, in a a glass. Natural face in a glass. There's your mirror, mirror on the wall. For he beholdeth himself, ah, here it comes, and goeth his way. Because you look so good today. Got your little fluffy stuff, your little hair fluffed up there. Got your shaved, you got you all up there, and got your got your buzz cut. You're looking really good there, and you're looking at that mirror, and you 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 go your way. Natural face, you see. Verse twenty five. But whoso looketh into the perfect law of liberty, there's the Bible, and continue therein. He being not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the word, this man shall be blessed in his deed. And that's what happens. You come to any church, not this one, any church that teaches the Bible, any church that eats, sleeps, and drinks the Bible, and you get along for a while, for a year, two years, three years, you suck out of it everything you can, and then suddenly it's a cult now. Suddenly you got a problem now. In a church that met your needs and for two, three years it was wonderful? What happened? Who are you? I know who you are. Like some people come, you know, they're in for two months and then you don't see them for six. And then they come back, same old story, you know, well, be really busy, really this, really that. You know, they're in for another month and a half, and then they're gone for eight. I mean, they're as, they're as inconsistent as they could be. And, you know, all you got to do is look at their family, look at their life. It's a disaster. Their kids are a disaster. The grandkids will be a disaster. I mean, it's, it's an absolute, it's a mess. And the real battle, hey, you don't need a psychologist you don't, you don't need somebody sitting down and laying on a couch and telling them what your problems are. Your basic problem, your battle, is who God wants them to be versus who you really want to be. 
And you know what? Those five or six, seven, eight months they're away from God's house and God's church, they make some of the biggest, dumbest mistakes and add to the weight already on them, and they can't ever get out from under it. It swaddles them up. The looking glass of the Word of God will show you who you really are. And don't give me this gas about your changed life. It ain't about what you say. It's about when you have an issue, when there's a fundamental problem that is weighty enough for you to leave a church and you just walk out and won't deal with it, won't tell who that person is, won't have that meeting. We got your number, buddy. And I'll tell you, I'm just the real key for all of us to have a real working relationship with Christ is one word honesty. Honesty. Honesty with God, honesty with ourselves, then honesty with each other. It answers that question that John was asked in verse 19. Who art thou? Quit deceiving yourself. Now, our second question that we're all faced with, first one's in John, we've got to move a little out of this one, but the second question that we all have to face and answer will be in Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. I'm sorry, not verse 1, Genesis chapter 3. And this just happens to be our second question in the Bible. See, once I found the first one, I just couldn't stop. I had to find the second one. And what I found was is that the first one was asked by the devil, but the second one was asked by God. And God asked Adam in Genesis chapter 3, verse 9. He says, Adam, where art thou? And that's the second question we all got to face and answer. I don't care who you are. And not only do you have to face and answer the question of who you are, then you have to face this one and answer where you're at today with God. Now, I know, allow me my own personal view on this. I mean, uh, I allow you whatever you want to believe. Um, I mean, you know, but this is, this is me. This is me. Um, you know, this is my take on it. And I give you, right out of the chute, um, um, I'm, I'm, I'm weird when it comes to things because, and I hate to say this, but, uh, you know, I'm weird because I just believe the Bible. I can't help it that you don't. But I think without a doubt, one of the greatest lessons out of this pandemic that we're all going through is that every one of us has had to ask ourselves that question. Now, I get it. You're old, you're sick, you got some disabilities, you need to be really do what you got to do. I am not saying that, but come on. Are we, can we talk here? Where are we really at with God? And as far as I'm concerned, my opinion, you don't have to buy it. I don't care. Doesn't matter to me. Uh, as far as I'm concerned, this whole time we're going through has been, it has been and probably will continue to be the greatest purging of the church today and of God's people. Because nothing will reveal who we really are and where we're really at more than times like these 
facing a crisis that, you know, you know I, I got to be honest with you. I, I, I am clearly would be disappointed in people that I thought were my friends, that I thought were part of this ministry, that I thought were, you know, had told me, you know, for years and years and years, we preached all this stuff that was coming. Boy, oh, you're there, you're that with all this. And this is what I've learned. This is what I've learned. Now, listen very carefully, because this is really important. This is important of who you are and where you're at. You know what I've learned? So many of God's people are willing to go through something with somebody else. You get cancer, I'm there for you. You get AIDS, I'm, I'm kind of there for you. <laughs> now be careful with what you do say today. You know, you get tuberculosis, I'm there for you. You get in a car wreck and get your legs broke, I'm there for you. I found this to be true. God's people are really strong when they got to go through things for somebody else. Where they fail when they're weak is when you got to go through it yourself. I'm going to tell you something. You ain't going to like this. I bet you we're down from 39 to about 10 now, huh? We're up two. Thank <laughs> you, Jesus. I'm going to tell you something. Going through something with somebody doesn't really prove who you are with God. It just proves you're a nice person what really proves where you're at with God and who you are when you have to go through it yourself. What do you do when you get cancer? What do you do when you get some disease or you get in a car wreck? What do you do when, when you have to face Corona-19? Okay. And as far as I'm concerned, this whole pandemic has been the greatest revealer and I'd be honest with you. I, I, I would. I'd be lying to you if I. I didn't. Uh, I. You know that, that I didn't. I didn't tell you that. You know that. I. It, it. It bothered me with some people. It really did, because all my life with these people, you know, ten, fifteen, twenty, thirty, forty years. You know, I. I was under the assumption that whatever hit us, you were there. And, uh, you know, I, I, look at that as a, I look at it as a great and necessary purging. I mean, I do. Because nothing will reveal who we really are and where we're really at more than the times like these. You know, the greatest illustration I ever heard in my life, and I, I've told it to you many times, but I'm going to tell it again because we've got new people, but, and you need to hear it again. Years ago... I, I had a guy, heard a guy preach, and some of you remember, his name was Manly Beasley. He's dead now. Manly Beasley preached up to the day he died. He had seven terminal diseases. He had cancer. He had leukemia. He had five other diseases that the doctors said. I mean, I'm not kidding you. He, when you saw him, Terry, you remember, don't you, Terry, huh? He, he looked like he'd been dead for three weeks and didn't, wouldn't put him in a casket. He was thin. He was emaciated. That means thin. But I want you to know how educated I am. He was thin. He was emaciated. He was pale white, ash white. Remember? 
frail little guy. When he got up to preach, he wasn't on fire. He couldn't turn up. And when he was done just talking, they had to take him out and put him, let him rest someplace. I mean, but you know what? He had seven, listen to me, seven terminal diseases. And he never stopped preaching till the day he died. Where are you at with that? Who are you, really? And I remember one time he was preaching, and he was great in the philosophical things that he would say that would just hit you. And like a ton of bricks. And he said, he walked around the pulpit just like this, and the place was packed, 3,000 people. And he was preaching on, you know, going through trials because he was going through it. And a lot of people got a lot of strength of what he was doing. And he has says, he says, what do you get when you squeeze a lemon? And he asked a lady in the front, and she kind of laughed, and she said, well, lemon juice. And he said, you would think that, wouldn't you? He says, he was from Atlanta. He said, back home in Atlanta, there was a man going into the, into the grocery stores and had cyanide or some kind of poisoning and he was in the fruit section and he was injecting it in the lemons. And like eight or nine people had died because they bought the lemons, went home, squeezed the lemons, made lemonade out of it and died. And he told that story. And he said, so I asked the question, what do you get when you squeeze the lemon? And obviously the number one answer would be lemon juice. But the real answer is whatever's on the inside comes out. And then he said this, what do you get when you squeeze a Christian? What do you get when you squeeze a Christian? And we would think Christian Jews, something like that. But his point was, you know what you get when we all get squeezed? You know what happens when you got squeezed? You know what happens when we get squeezed? What's really on the inside comes out. Who are you? What sayest thou of thyself? And where are you today? I'm telling you. I'm telling you. Nothing will reveal who we really are and where we are at more than the times like these and facing what we're facing. It's a great reality check for all of us for those two questions, who we are and where you're at. I mean, do we really believe in the protecting hand of God? Do we really believe that, sure, you got to be careful. Sure, you got to take all kinds of precautions. Really? Uh, but, but so what? So what? You just give up everything in your life and hide under the bed or a rock? I, I show you. You know, I got friends that are big in predestination. Good friends. And they believe in predestination. And predestination is more than just you're predestined to be saved. It means that everything in your life is already predestined. And they're scared to death to come out to get the coronavirus. You know why? If you're predestined to get it, what are you worried about? You see how tough times reveal how phony we really are? Now, I get it. In most cases... The pandemic and you staying home and hiding didn't didn't stop. You know, and it's always wild. They, I, I talk to people, you know, tell me, well, I can't come to church because, you know, I'm afraid. But you go to showers. You go to birthday parties. You go to all the things out there that 
you want to go to. And I'll, and I'll be honest, in most cases, it doesn't really matter. The older folks who are sick and, and, you know, they need to stay away, I miss them terribly. But I'll be honest with you, for the most part, you know, the coronavirus never really stopped your ministry. Do you know why? You never had one to begin with. You didn't come to church. There was no investment here. You came to suck out of me all that you could get. You came because you wanted the Bible truth. You came because you wanted this or you wanted that. You got into Bible Institute and you wanted to, you know, get all of the great truth. But you never did anything with it. It it didn't mean anything to you. There was no investment here. There was no reason for you. I got to be here today. It was a convenience for you to come to church. Somebody told me, well, we're not coming right now because, you know, we got a little girl here and she, you know, and she's four or five or six or seven and, you know, she doesn't sit very well and uh, so we're just going to stay home and watch. And I thought to myself, that's so typical. What a great opportunity to teach that little girl to sit in church. I taught my kids to sit when they were two. Well, I didn't. Barb did. Taught them when they were two. <laughs> didn't work. Nice jacket. You know what? If they're seven years old, six years old, and you're just now starting to think about teaching them, you've missed it by about four years. Who are you? You don't need a church. You need that place with a big tent. You know, it's not a revival. It's Ringley Brothers. It's a circus. Let's break it down, shall we? Where you're at in your own walk with the Lord today. Where you're at in your church. Ephesians tells us that Christ loved the church and died for it. And then the new version will say, except when there was a coronavirus. Where you're at in your stewardship of the grace of God. Where you're at in your Bible, where you're at in whatever trial you're going through, where you're at in your ministry, where you're at in the people, uh, with people or your family, where you're at with the health issues you're going through, where you're at with your family issues going through, where you're at with your work issues, daily life issues. Now, you know, I'm going to say this, and please, I have all the respect for you too. You guys had a little spiff this morning, I guess, right? You know what I love about you? Both of you. Let me think here a minute. No. <laughs> you know what I love about both of you? If it would have been nine out of ten other people, they never would have came to church this morning. I love it when people bring their fights to church. But see, that's the kind of people you are. You know why? Because you love this church, don't you? It means, no, here she goes. You don't have to hold hands. You smacking him with that hand just a little bit ago. People saw you do that. It's a thing where, but that's you, see? That's my point. Now, now take solace. Solace is comfort. I'm educated. Take, take comfort in the fact that the reason why you had to fight this morning is because God needed me to have it for an illustration of my sermon. But see, that's what I mean. This church means something to you. Most people would have drove off someplace, got mad, and just went home and not, but no. 
No, and I, that's, that's what I'm talking about. You know, you, this place, does it mean something to you? I mean, I'm gonna, honestly, if I, I'm a, if I miss one service, I feel like I've got my legs cut off. I honestly don't know how some people can just go and go and go. And you know what? And, you know, and even if you're home, I get this all the time. Well, we don't watch it and get up with you in the morning and watch it. We'll sleep in and, you know, and watch it later on in the afternoon. Well, and if that's what you got to do, that's what you got to do. But I want to tell you, the Bible says, Satan, and even though you're home, there's a value of us still being here or all together. But you don't see that. Who are you? And where are you at in the world? Or, or maybe a better way to ask it, where in the world are you? Nothing will define us. Nothing will keep us honest today better than the two questions that you must answer. And God demands an answer. Who are you and where are you? Standing on the rock or hiding under it? Two of the greatest questions in all the Bible. Now, you don't want to miss this. When God finally came down in the cool of the garden in Genesis chapter 3, he's walking down there and he's saying, Adam, where art thou? Now, I want you to understand this. Let me just deviate from the story. Adam, where art thou? God knew exactly where he was at. If God wanted, he's hiding, he's hiding behind a fig tree that he just plucked the leaves off made himself a little covering. I always thought that was amazing. If God wanted to do it right, and I was, if I was God, I'd have a little, I'd get me a Mossberg 12 gauge, you know, and give me a couple of angels that are hunting dogs and flush them out, boys. And, you know, there goes Adam. There goes. No, God says, Adam, where art thou? When he already knew where he was. You know why God did that? God knew where Adam was. God wanted to see if Adam was honest enough to know where he was at. And sometimes God, through a message like this, here it comes, pal. How am I doing, Jamie? Sometimes, sometimes, some, sometimes through a message like this, God, through the preaching, will ask where you're at, and you're sitting there, and he already knows where you're at. He just wants to see if you'll be honest with yourself, honest with him. And get honest of where you're really at. That's a great principle. Great principle. Where was he? He's hiding behind some fig trees. And God knew where he was at and just wanted to see if he knew where he was at. Well, let me ask you. Let me ask you. He says, Adam, where art thou? Adam was hiding behind a fig tree. He knew where he was. Let me ask you. What are you hiding behind this morning? What are you hiding behind this morning? I mean, I don't know who's watching. I can't see upstairs. I know kind of who's here and I can see here. But I'm going to tell you right now, Holy Spirit of God is knocking on your door this morning. And two questions that you're going to have to answer. And the third question is, what are you hiding behind? Are you hiding behind your own self-righteousness? You hiding behind some sin? Are you hiding behind some bitterness? Are you hiding behind some anger? Are you hiding behind some fear? Or maybe it's a covert 19 itself. Hey, listen, don't kid me. 
Don't kid me. Across this country, there's people who they'll never be back to church. And I'm going to tell you right now, folks, write it down. Write it down for the crazy old 70-year-old man. The longer you stay away, the harder it's going to be for you to get back. The devil will see to it. You'll start finding other people that are disgruntled, that haven't done what's right. You'll find a little allegiance there, a little bond there. You can all trade your garbage. And you'll all have two things in common. None of you are right with God, and two, none of you will do what you need to do to make things right. God's great purging. And I'm telling you, make no mistake, God knows exactly where we're at this morning and what we're hiding behind. The question is, do you know the truth about yourself and where you're really at? What sayest thou of thyself? Now, at the end of the day, don't get excited. It's not the end of the message. It's at the end of the day. The end of the day, you'll never know and understand where you're at till you first understand and deal with who you really are. And then begin to change it. The longer I live, the more I deal with people, and the more God deals with me and myself, I see the number one word in all of our life as Christians is the word change. Both the world and God want to change you. The world wants to ultimately destroy you, Daniel chapter 1, through totally transforming you from, from, from a child of God to the world system. And God wants to constantly try to change you to be like his ultimate glory. A transformation, Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, into being like him. Now, for just in a moment here, and we're getting close to the end, so you can breathe easy here. Go back to chapter 1, verses 19 and 28. I want you to notice that when John is asked who he is, he passes the test. Verse 20 says that he confesses and he denied not. That's a good thing for all of us to learn today. Confess who we really are and don't deny it anymore. Most of God's people, 90% of them probably, no question about it, they live a life of denial. Verse 23 Who is he? He was the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Verse 26, he describes his work. I'm just doing the work he sent me to do. Verse 27, he confesses who he is uh, and who Christ is. he, he, uh, He preferred before me, and I'm not worthy to unlatch his shoes. Who am I? Who art thou? He passed the test. I'm the guy who got saved and I'm going to spend the rest of my life telling everybody I meet, no matter what my circumstances are, no matter what the Roman government threatens me, no matter what bondage they put me under, I'm going to spend the rest of my life doing what he called me to do. Who are you today? (laughs) Before we all get row, 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 here we go. I'm going to tell you something. I want you to notice Matthew chapter 14, verse 8. That attitude got him killed. 
Herod takes him, has a wild belly dancer do a dance for him, and he says, I'll give you anything in my kingdom underneath my throne. And his wife didn't like John the Baptist, and so she got into her daughter's ear and says, get John's head cut off, and they killed him. Let me ask you a question. Let me ask you. Are you willing to get killed for what you believe? Well, that's a tough question. I mean, we look at John the Baptist. He didn't hold up for a moment and got him killed. Who are you this morning? Really, who are you? Are you and I willing to lay it on the line? How much are you willing to lay it on the line for him? See, there's nothing like a little pandemic to flush us all out and see who we are and where we're at. Now look at Adam, Genesis chapter 3, verses 9. He's wrong, complete opposite from, from John the Baptist. He's wrong, made a total mess out of everything that God wanted to do with him, just like you, pal, just like so many of God's people. But when God calls him, Adam, where art thou? He cups from up from under the fig leaves and he gets honest with God of where he's really at. And he confesses too, Genesis 3.10. He says, Lord, I was afraid. I found myself naked and I hid. And what did God do? What he always does. He says, Adam, get that apron of fig leaves off. And he went out and killed a lamb, shed some innocent animal's blood and made a skin of goats and said, now cover your nakedness with this. And you know what else I found? Just me. After that thing in chapter 3, when God deals with him, there isn't one issue recorded that Adam ever had with God again. It seems like he learned his lesson of where he was really at. My question is, will you learn it? Will you learn the lesson today of who you are and where you're at and realize if you have an issue, the Bible says we solve it. And make no mistake, in Christianity, these two questions will define who you really are and where you're really at. For me, again, I'm sorry, this is me. I, this is why in this time we had to part company. Not you, many of us. We had to part company. We're not on the same page. I thought we were. You gave every indication that we were as long as everything went well. But when push comes to shove, it's very obviously that I'm still here in your home and not coming back. You're there, I'm here. And we're not on the same page. I'm, I'm sorry, I was hoped we would be and I thought we would. But for me, I'm just telling you, I'm not willing to go to heaven and have to stand in the presence of the Waldensians, the Polyseans, the Catherii, the Huguenots, the Anabaptists, the Hussites, and all the millions and millions of God's people who faced a 100,000 times greater issues than this stupid COVID-19. And I, 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 I just, I, I just, I, I, I will not, I, I will not permit myself to stand in their presence and look into their eyes with my tail between my legs. Now maybe you're okay with that. God's people today, you ought to be ashamed of yourself. 
And I get it. You're home, you're sick, you're frail, you got some other problem, you got to take care. Hey, I'm with you. Stay safe. Then the last thing, and I promise you I'm done. Verse 22. When the priest came to John, back to John 1 now. When the priest came to John and said, Who art thou? They said, Who art thou that we may give an answer to them that sent us? What sayest thou of thyself? Now here's what I want to leave you with. In the middle of this pandemic, in the middle of this fear that's gripped you, so many of God's people, and I'm not saying you don't follow the rules. I'm not saying you don't do what's right. Stay with the law, Romans chapter 13. But I am saying, in the middle of all of this, there will still always be people who are looking to you for the answers that they don't have. And unfortunately, in most cases, they're mistaken to think that you do. Romans chapter 14, verse 7 says, there's somebody always watching our life. No man liveth to himself and no man dieth to himself. Somebody is always watching your life. And they came to him and they said, tell us who you are that we may give an answer to them that has sent us. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15 says, but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. And be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is within you with meekness and fear. Who are you this morning? We're going through this thing now, you know, and it, the real witness that you have is how you deal with it. There's people who are absolutely scared who are lost. There shouldn't be any of God's people who are scared. I'm sorry. Careful, deliberate, wise, yes. Scared, no. And when I see all this, I'm not under the illusion. When all this shakes down, our church, the state of the vineyard will be in great shape. Because the ones that have hung with it, and we've all had to make adjustments. We've all had to do things. I get that. I'm saying at the end of the day, we band of brothers who stayed with it, who came through the purging, who answered the questions, who are we and where are we, we'll get more done with 180, 90 people left than 300 people with the rest of them gone. Your gold, if Jesus Christ is inside you, this church is filled with gold nuggets. Every one of you at the judgment seat of Christ, the first thing that you should have built on your foundation and almost everybody here I would vouch for has is gold. This church is filled with gold nuggets this morning. Every one of you is a piece of gold that God dug out of the earth, the world. And you know and well as I do, the way God, per, and, you know, and, I, and I don't understand, all down through history, 
God has judged his people with other nations and diseases. Daniel had to go into captivity. He was right with God. Ezekiel was a prophet. He, but they had to go in. They had to go through their purging just like you do. But you and I both know every one of you is a piece of gold this morning. And I'm telling you right now, through this purging, the way you make gold pure is to try it by fire. And this church is going through its trial by fire. And what happens with the gold when the fire hits it, the dross, the impurities get taken off. And what is left after the fire is the purest gold God could have. That'll be this church. Who are you this morning? Where are you? See, it doesn't matter what you say. It doesn't matter how you put out these big words of what you're doing and what God has done. The real question of who you are is when push comes to shove and the issue is there, what do you do with it? Who are you and where are you? Well, that question, those two questions in my life have been something that I saw years and years ago and just never never really laid it out to you that way, but there was the opportunity today. So, hey, I love you. Let's have a word of prayer. We'll be dismissed. No Bible study. Have a nice Thanksgiving with your people. Remember, no gatherings more than two people for Thanksgiving. (laughs) Uh, And uh, no institute. We'll have it on the fifth following week. I love you very much. And I want to say, from the bottom of my heart, you are the best people on the planet. Nothing has stopped us. We have found our way through everything. And I would basically say the people that we lost, we needed to lose. Because, as he tells you in the Gospels, when you prune the tree back, you get more fruit. It's not, a, it's not an easy thing to say and not an easy thing to accept, but it's the Bible. So we're better off now than we've ever been. We will get through this. It's not just my job to lead you through this. You hear that our leaders, it's our job to lead each other through this. And, uh, you know, that's where we're at. Well, let's have a word of prayer and we'll be dismissed.